Section three of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book One, Chapters Ten through Thirteen. Chapter Ten Again on Foot The Girls That Never Can Be Mine. Next morning I was afoot early bent on my quest in right good earnest, for I had a remorseful feeling that I had not been sufficiently diligent the day before, had spent too much time in dreaming and moralizing, in which opinion I am afraid the reader will agree. So I was up and out of the town while as yet most of the inhabitants were in the throes of getting up. Somewhere, too, she, the golden one, the white woman, was drowsily tossing the night-clothes from her limbs and rubbing her sleepy eyes. William Morris's lovely song came into my mind. Quote, and midst them all, perchance, my love is waking and doth gently move, and stretch her soft arms out to me, forgetting thousand leagues of sea. Close quote. Perhaps she was in the very town I was leaving behind. Perhaps we had slept within a few houses of each other. Who could tell? Looking back at the old town with its one steep street climbing the white face of the chalk hill, I remembered what wonderful exotic women Thomas Hardy had found eating their hearts out behind the windows of dull country high streets through which hung, waving no banners of romance, outwardly as unpromising of adventure as the windows of the town I had left, and then, turning my steps across a wide common, which ran with gorse and whortleberry bushes, away on every side to distant hilly horizons, swarthy with pines, and dotted here and there with stone granges and white villages, I thought of all the women within that circle, any one of whom might prove the woman I sought, from milkmaids crossing the meadows, their strong shoulders straining with the weight of heavy pails, to the fine ladies dying of ennui in their country houses, pretty farmers' daughters surreptitiously reading novels and longing for London and wife, passionate young farmers' wives, already weary of their doltish lords, bright-eyed barmaids buried alive in country inns and wondering whatever possessed them to leave Manchester, for barmaids seem always to come from Manchester, all longing modestly, said I, to set eyes on a man like me, a man of romance, a man of feeling, a man, if you like, to run away with. My heart flooded over with tender pity for these poor sweet women, though perhaps chiefly for my own sad lot, in not encountering them, and I conceived a great comprehensive love-poem to be entitled The Girls That Never Can Be Mine. Perhaps before the end of our tramp together I shall have a few verses of it to submit to the elegant taste of the reader, but at present I have not advanced beyond the title. End of chapter 10《Quest of the Golden Girl》Chapter 11 An Old Man of the Hills 
and the schoolmaster's story. While occupying myself with these no-doubt wanton reflections on the unfair division of opportunities in human life, I was leisurely crossing the common, and presently I came up with a pedestrian who, though I had little suspected it as I caught sight of him ahead, was destined by a kind providence to make more entertaining talk for me in half an hour than most people provide in a lifetime. He was an oldish man, turned sixty, one would say, and belonging to judge from his dress and general appearance to what one might call the upper laboring class. He wore a decent square felt hat, a shabby, respectable overcoat, a workman's knitted waistcoat, and workman's corduroys, and he carried an umbrella. His upper part might have belonged to a small, well-to-do tradesman, while his lower bore marks of recent bricklaying. Without its being remarkable, he had what one calls a good face, somewhat aquiline in character, with a refined forehead and nose. His cheeks were shaved, and his whitening beard and moustache were worn somewhat after the fashion of Charles Dickens. This gave a slight touch of severity to a face that was full of quiet strength. Passing the time of day to each other, we were soon in conversation, I asking him this and that question about the neighboring countryside, of which I gathered he was an old inhabitant. Yes, he said presently, I was the first to put stick or stone on Whortleberry Common yonder. Fifteen years ago I built my own wood cottage there, and now I am rebuilding it of good Surrey stone. Do you mean that you are building it yourself with your own hands? No one to help you? I asked. Not so much as to carry a pail of water, he replied. I am my own contractor, my own carpenter, and my own bricklayer, and I shall be sixty-seven comes Michaelmas, he added, by no means irrelevantly. There was pride in his voice. Pardonable pride, I thought, for who of us would not be proud to be able to build his own house from floor to chimney? Sixty-seven! A man can see and do a good deal in that time, I said, not flattering myself on the originality of the remark, but desiring to set him talking. In the country, as elsewhere, we must forego profundity if we wish to be understood. Yes, sir, he said, I have been about a good deal in my time. I have seen pretty well all of the world there is to say, and sailed as far as a ship would take me. Indeed, you have been a sailor, too. Twenty-two thousand miles of sea, he continued, without directly answering my remark. Yes, Vancouver's as far as any vessel need want to go, and then I have caught seals off the coast of Labrador and walked my way through the raspberry plains at the back of the White Mountain. Vancouver, Labrador, the White Mountains? The very names thus casually mentioned on a Surrey heath seemed full of the sounding sea. Like talismans, they whisked one away to strange lands, across vast distances of space imagination refused to span. Strange to think that the shabby little men at my side had them all fast locked, 
pictures upon pictures in his brain and as we were talking was back again in goodness knows what remote latitude i kept looking at him and saying twenty-two thousand miles of sea sixty-seven and builds his own cottage in addition to all this he had found time to be twenty-one years a policeman and to beget and wear successively twelve children he was now i gathered living partly on his pension and spoke of his daughter married this daughter in service here and that daughter in service there one son settled in london and another in the states with something of a patriarchal pride with the independent air too of a man who could honestly say to himself that with few advantages from fortune having had so to say to work his passage every foot and hour of it across those twenty-two thousand miles and those sixty-seven years he had made a thoroughly creditable job of his life as we walked along i caught glimpses in his vivid and ever varying talk of the qualities that had made his success possible they are always the same qualities a little pile of half-hewn stones the remains of a ruined wall scattered by the roadside caught his eye i've seen the time when i wouldn't have left them stones lying out there he said and presently why god bless you i've made my own boots before to-day give me the tops and i'll soon rig up a pair still and with all his success and his evident satisfaction with his lot the man was neither a prig nor a teetotaler he had probably seen too much of the world to be either yet he had he said been too busy all his life to spend much time in public houses as we drank a pint of ale together in the inn which stood at the end of the common no it's all well enough in its way but it's wallows time he remarked you see my wife and i have our own pen at home and when i'm a bit tired i just draw a glass for myself and smoke a pipe and there's no time wasted coming and going and drinking first with this and then with the other a little way past the inn we came upon a notice-board whereupon the lord of the manor warned all wayfarers against trespassing on the common by making encampments lighting fires or cutting firewood thereon and to this fortunate circumstance i owe the most interesting story my companion had to tell we had mentioned the lord of the manor as we crossed the common and the notice-board brought him once more to the old man's mind poor gentleman he said pointing to the board as though it was the lord of the manor himself standing there i shouldn't like to have had the trouble he's had on my shoulders indeed i said interrogatively well you see sir he continued instinctively lowering his voice to a confidential impressiveness he married an actress a noble lady too she was a fine dashing merry lady as ever you saw all went well for a while and then it suddenly got whispered about that she and the village schoolmaster were meeting each other at night in the meadow-bottom at the end of her own park it lies over that way i could take you to the very place 
the schoolmaster was a noble-looking young man too a devil-me-care blade of a fellow with a turn for poetry they said and a merry man too and much in request for a song at the moonrakers of an evening many's the night i've heard the windows rattling with the good company gathered round him yes he was a noble-looking man a noble-looking man he repeated wistfully and with an evident sympathy for the lovers which i need hardly say won my heart but how i wonder did they come to know each other i interrupted anxious to learn all i could even if i had to ask stupid questions to learn it well of course no one can say how these things come about she was the lady of the manor and the patroness of his school and then as i say he was a very noble-looking man and probably took her fancy and sir whenever some women set their hearts on a man there's no stopping them have him they will whatever happens they can't help it poor things it's just a freak of nature well and how was it found out i again jogged him one of sir william's keepers played the spy on them he spread it all over the place how he had seen them on moonlight nights sitting together in the dingle drinking champagne and laughing and talking as merry as you please and of course it came in time to sir william you see that green lane there he broke off pointing to a romantic path winding along the heath side it was along there he used to go overnight to meet her after every one was in bed and when it all came out there was a regular cartload of bottles found there the squire had them all broken up but the pieces are there to this day yes he again proceeded it hit sir william very hard he's never been the same man since i am afraid that my sympathies were less with sir william than better regulated sympathies would have been i confess that my imagination was more occupied with that picture of the two lovers making merry together in the moonlight dingle is it not indeed a fascinating little story with its piquant contrasts and its wild love at all costs and how many such stories are hidden about the country lying carelessly in rustic memories if one only knew where to find them at this point my companion left me and i well i confess that i retraced my steps to the common and rambled up that green lane along with the romantic schoolmaster used to steal in the moonlight to the warm arms of his love how eagerly he had trodden the very turf i was treading we never know at what moment we are treading sacred earth but for that old man i had passed along this path without a thrill had i not but an hour ago stood upon this very common vainly so it seemed invoking the spirits of passion and romance and the grim old common had never made a sign and now i stood in the very dingle where they had so often and so wildly met and it was all gone quite gone away for ever 
the hours that had seemed so real the kisses that had seemed like to last for ever the vows the tears all now as if they had never been gone on the four winds lost in the abysses of time and space and to think of all the thousands and thousands of lovers who had loved no less wildly and tenderly made sweet these lanes with their vows made green these meadows with their feet and they too all gone their bright eyes fallen to dust their sweet voices for ever put to silence to which i would add for the benefit of the profane that i sought in vain for those broken bottles end of chapter eleven chapter twelve the truth about the gypsies i felt lonely after losing my companion and i met nobody to take his place in fact for a couple of hours i met nothing worth mentioning male or female with the exception of a gypsy caravan which i suppose was both but it was a poor show borrow would have blushed for it in fact it is my humble opinion that the gypsies have been overdone just as the alps have been overclimbed i have no great desire to see switzerland for i am sure the alps must be greasy with being climbed besides the alps and the gypsies in common with waterfalls and ruined castles belong to the ready-made operatic poetry of the world from which the last thrill has long since departed they are so to say public poetry the public poetry of the emotions and no longer touch the private heart or stir the private imagination our fathers felt so much about them that there is nothing left for us to feel they are as a rose whose fragrant has been exhausted by greedy and indiscriminate smelling i would rather find a little surrey common for myself and idle about it on a summer's day with the other geese and donkeys than climb the tallest alp most gypsies are merely tenth-rate provincial companies travelling with and villainously travestying borrows great pieces of la verengro and romany rye dirty ill-looking scowling men dirty slovenly and wickedly ugly women children to match snarling filthy little curs with a ready beggar's whine on occasion a gypsy encampment to-day is a little more than a moving slum a scab of squalor on the fair face of the countryside but there was one little trifle of an incident that touched me as i passed this particular caravan evidently one of the vans had come to grief and several men of the party were making a great show of repairing it after i had run the gauntlet of the begging children and was just out of earshot of the group i turned round to survey it from a distance it was encamped on a slight rise of the undulating road and from where i stood tents and vans and men were clearly silhouetted against the sky the road ran through and a little higher than the encampment which occupied both sides of it 
Presently, the figure of a young man separated itself from the rest, stepped up onto the smooth road, and, standing in the middle of it in an absorbed attitude, began to make a movement with his hands as though winding string around the top. That, in fact, was his occupation. For the next five minutes he kept thus winding the cord, fleeing the top to the ground, and intently bending down to catch it on his hand. None of the others, not even the children, taking the slightest notice of him. He, entirely alone there, with his poor little pleasure, there seemed to me pathos in his loneliness. Had someone spun the top with him, it would have vanished, and presently, no doubt, at the bidding of an oath I could not hear, he hurriedly thrust the top into his pocket and once more joined the straining group of men. The snatched pleasure must be put by at the call of reality. The world and its work must rush in upon his dream. I have often thought about the top and its spinner, as I have noted the absorbed faces of other people's pleasures in the streets. Two lovers passing along the crowded strand, with eyes only for each other, a student deep in his book in the corner of an omnibus, a young mother glowing over the child in her arms, the wild-eyed musician dreamily treading on everybody's toes and begging nobody's pardon, the pretty little gaiety girl hurrying to rehearsal with no thought but of her own sweet self and whether there will be a letter from Harry at the stage door. Yes, if we are alone in our griefs, we are no less alone in our pleasures. We spin our tops as in an enchanted circle, and no one sees or heeds save ourselves. As how should they with their own tops to spin? Happily indeed is he who has his top and cares still to spin it. For to be tired of our tops is to be tired of life, saith the preacher. As the young gypsy's little holiday came to an end, I turned with a sigh upon my way, and here, while still on the subject, may I remark on the curious fact that probably Borrow has lived and died without a single gypsy having heard of him, just as the expertest anglers know nothing of Isaac Walton. Has the British soldier, one wonders, yet discovered Rudyard Kipling? Or is the Wessex peasant aware of Thomas Hardy? It is odd to think that the last people to read such authors are the very people they most concern. For you might spend your life, say, in studying the London street boy, and write never so movingly and humorously about him, yet would he never know your name and though Whitechapel makes novelists, it does so without knowing it, makes them to be read in Mayfair, just as it never wears the dainty hats and gowns its weary little milliners and seamstresses make through the day and night. It is capital and labor all over again, for in the literature also we reap in gladness what others have sown in tears. And now, after these admirable reflections, I am about to make such art as I can of another man's tragedy 
as will appear in the next chapter. End of chapter 12 The Quest of the Golden Girl Chapter 13 A Strange Wedding My moralizings were cut short by my entering a village, and while it being about the hour of noon, finding myself in the thick of a village wedding. Undoubtedly, the nicest way to get married is on the sly, and indeed, it is at present becoming quite fashionable. Many young couples of my acquaintance, who have had no other reason for concealing the fact beyond their own whim, have thus slipped off without saying a word to anybody, and returned full-blown housekeepers with at-home days of their own, and everything else like real married people. For, as said an old lady to me, one can never be sure of married people nowadays unless you have been at the wedding. My friend, George Muncaster, who does everything charmingly different from anyone else, hit upon one of the quaintest plans for his marriage. It was simple, and some say prosaic enough. His days being spent at a great office in the city, he got leave of absence for a couple of hours, met his wife, went with her to the registrar's, returned to his office, worked the rest of the day as usual, and then went to his new home to find his wife and dinner awaiting him. All just as it was going to be every night for so many happy years. Prosaic, you say? Not your idea of poetry, perhaps, but after a new and growing fashion in poetry, truly poetic. George Muncaster's marriage is a type of the new poetry, but poetry of essentials. The old poetry, as exemplified in the old-fashioned marriage, is a poetry of externals, and certainly it has the advantage of picturesqueness. There is perhaps more to be said for it than that. Indeed, if I were ever to get married, I am at a loss to know which way I should choose george muncaster's way or the old merry fashion with the rice old shoes and the orange blossom no doubt the old cheery publicity is a little embarrassing to the two most concerned and the old marriage customs the singing of the bride and bridegroom to their nuptial couch the frank jests the country horseplay must have fretted the souls of many a lover before shelley who, it will be remembered, resented the choral celebrations of his Scotch landlord and friends by appearing at his bedroom door with a brace of pistols. How like Shelley! The Scotch landlord meant well, we may be sure, and a very small pinch of humor, or even mere ordinary humanity, as distinct from humanitarianism, would have taken in the situation. Of course, Shelley's mind was full of the sanctity of the moment, and indignant that the hour for which the years did sigh should thus be broken in upon by vulgar revelry. But while we may sympathize with his view, and admit to the full and the sacredness, not to say the solemnity, of the marriage ceremony, yet it is to be hoped that it still retains a naturally mirthful side of which such public merriment is but the crude expression. 
with all its sweet and mystical significance, surely the prevailing feeling in the hearts of bride and bridegroom is, or should be, that of happiness. Happiness bubbling and dancing all sunny ripples from heart to heart. Surely they can spare a little of it, just one day's sight of it, to a less happy world, a world long since married and done for, and with little happiness in it, save the spectacle of other people's happiness. It is good for us to see happy people, good for the symbols of happiness to be carried high amidst us on occasion, for if they serve no other purpose, they inspire in us the hope that we, too, may some day be happy, or remind our discontented hearts that we have been. If it were only for the sake of those quaint old women for whom life would be entirely robbed of interest, were it not for other people's weddings and funerals, one feels the public ceremony of marriage a sort of public duty, the happiness tax, so to say, due to the somewhat impoverished revenues of public happiness. Other forms of happiness are taxed. Why not marriage? In a village, particularly two people who rob the community of its perquisites in this respect would be looked upon as enemies of the people, and their joint life would begin under a social ban which it would cost much subsequent hospitality to remove. The dramatic instinct to which the life of towns is unnecessarily favorable is kept alive in the country by the smallness of the stage and the fewness of the actors. A village is an organism, conscious of its several parts as a town is not. In a village, everybody is a public man. The great events of his life are all public as well as private significance appropriately therefore invested with public ceremonial. Thus used to living in the public eye, the actors carry off their parts at weddings and other dramatic ceremonials with more spirit than is easy to a townsman who is naturally made self-conscious by being suddenly called upon to fill for a day a public position for which he has had no training. That, no doubt, is the real reason for the growth of quiet marriages and the desire for them, I suspect, comes first from the man, for there are few women who at heart do not prefer the old histrionic display. However, the village wedding, at which I suddenly found myself a spectator, was, for a village, a singularly quiet one. There was no bell ringing, and there were no bridesmaids. The bride drove up quietly with her father, and there was a subdued note even in the murmur of recognition which ran along the villagers as they stood in groups near the church porch. There was an absence of the usual hilarity which struck me. One might almost have said that there was a quite ominous silence. Seating myself in a corner of the transept, where I could see all and be little seen, I, with the rest, awaited the coming of the overdue bridegroom. Meanwhile the usual buzzing and bobbing of heads went on amongst the usual little group near the foot of the altar. Now and then one caught a glisten of tears through a widow's veil, and the little bride, dressed quietly in grey, 
talked with the usual nervous gaiety to her girlfriends, and made the usual whispered confidences about her trousseau. The father, in occasional conversation with one and another, appeared to be avoiding the subject with the usual self-conscious solemnity, and occasionally he looked somewhat anxiously, I thought, toward the church door. The bridegroom did not keep us waiting long. I noticed that he had a rather delicate, sad face, and presently the service began. I don't know myself what getting married must feel like, but it cannot be much more exciting than watching other people getting married. Probably the spectators are more conscious of the impressive meaning of it all than the brave young people themselves. I say brave, for I am always struck by the courage of the two, who thus gaily leap into the gulf of the unknown together, thus join hands over the inevitable, and put their signatures to the irrevocable. Indeed, I always get something like a palpitation of the heart just before the priest utters those final fateful words, I declare you man and wife. Half a second before, you were still free. Half a second after, you are bound for the term of your natural life. Half a second before, you had only to dash the book from the priest's hands and put your hand over his mouth, and thus giddily swinging on the brink of the precipice, you are saved. Half a second after, not all the king's horses and all the king's men can make you a bachelor ever again. It is the knife-edge moment twixt time and eternity. And curiously enough, while my thoughts were thus running on toward the rapids of that swirling moment, the very thing happened which I had often imagined might happen to myself. Suddenly, with a sob, the bridegroom covered his face with his hands, and crying, I cannot, I cannot, hurriedly left the church, tears streaming down his cheeks to the complete dismay of the sad little group at the altar, and the consternation of all present. Poor young man, I thought he would never go through with it, said an old woman, half to herself, who was sitting near me. I involuntarily looked my desire of explanation. Well, you see, she said, he had been married before. His first wife died four years ago, and he loved her beyond all heaven and earth. That evening, I afterwards heard, the young bridegroom's body was found by some boys as they went to bathe in the river. As I recalled once more that sad, yearning face, and heard again that horrible, I cannot, I cannot, I thought of Heine's son, Azra, who loved the sultan's daughter. What is thy name, slave? asked the princess, and what thy race and birthplace? My name, the young slave answered, is Muhammad. I come from Yemen. My race is that of Azra, and when we love, we die. And likewise a voice kept saying in my heart, If you ever find your golden bride, be sure she will die. End of chapter 13 End of section 3